This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Despite accelerated pathways for the development and approval of rare disease therapies, significant challenges remain for companies wishing to bring new treatments to market. Mallory Factor, CEO of IntraBio, recently testified at a U.S. Senate subcommittee hearing and argued that the programs in place today fail to address the needs companies like his have for timely and early interactions with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration when developing therapies for diseases afflicting small populations of patients. We spoke to Factor about his recent testimony, the issues companies like his face, and what he'd like to see done to address the problem. Mallory, thanks for joining us. Daniel, great to join you. We're going to talk about IntraBio, the issue small companies face in developing drugs for rare diseases, and your recent testimony to a U.S. Senate subcommittee about orphan drug development. For people not familiar with IntraBio, what are the diseases you're working to develop drugs to treat? Well, we're, we're working initially to develop drugs for a number of rare diseases, uh, lysosomal storage diseases. Our founders are the experts in the world on the lysosome. One of them even discovered the channels in the lysosome. But without boring you uh, about lysosomal uh, science, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you that the diseases that we are trialing and have trialed extensively in open-label Phase 2A trials are Neiman Pick Type C, Tay-Sachs, which some people uh, is known as GM2, which includes also Santoff, gangliosidosis 2, as well as ataxia telegentasia, which is a type of cerebellar ataxia. And these are not all just lysosomal storage disorders, but lysosomal storage disorders that have CNS involvement. Uh, they all have CNS involvement. Very good. Um, you're one of the few people I've ever talked with who understands that. Um, we've trialed, by the way, in 18 different indications successfully. Um, and when I say trial, I mean in people. And we've been trialing uh, in uh, compassionate use trials for over six years, close to seven years, particularly in Neiman Pick C. What are some of the challenges drug developers face in conducting clinical trials for diseases with small patient populations? Well, that's just it. They have small populations, so it's, hot, it's very hard to power um, in, in normal statistical ways um, various, um, with some of these small 
diseases. Secondly, the, in our, the diseases we're trialing, uh, and we hope to do pivotal trials, or at least phase 2B trials, um, and as you know, 76% of drugs are, um, that are for rare diseases are approved in successful phase 2B trials. When I say approved, they go into NDAs. Well, anyway, the challenges are, are, are threefold. Number one, if the diseases like ours manifest themselves in heterogeneous ways, what happens is you can't use single endpoints to be your primary endpoint because the manifestation may not be the same in each case. And if you try to set your inclusion-exclusion criteria with, uh, so tightly to get the exact same manifestation, you run out of people. Second of all, um, the way to, it's these in TASAC, the average um, lifespan of a child is about six point six years. Um, if the drug works, it is unethical. It's inhumane. It's wrong to have to switch them back to a placebo. What we have heard, and I don't know if this is true, I, I kind of know it's true, but I, we only heard it, is that people are actually buying the chemical grade because they know the drug works. So they're buying, and they're taking the chemical grade, unlicensed, and without any uh, physician um, helping them use the drug properly. So we are just um, asking the FDA to understand that we're not talking about... Um, erectile dysfunction or, uh, or uh, 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 toothache, we're talking about some, uh, some very serious diseases that kill people. And, that, and these diseases with these small populations can't be looked at and trialed in the same way as they, some of these big diseases are, are trialed. Because if you do, um, you will never get successful trials done that are statistically like you can do with the big diseases. There have been a, a number of legislative and regulatory efforts, starting with the Orphan Drug Act, that have been intended to both increase incentives and accelerate development of drugs for diseases with small populations. Uh, come on, Daniel, come on. We have nine orphan drug designations. Nine. That's almost unheard of for a little uh, small company like us. On top of it, and we'll have our 10th soon, we also have two rare pediatric disease designations. And they're wonderful after you get a drug approved. I mean, we're, get, we're eligible for a priority review voucher after we get a drug approved, but we have to get the NDA first. So what is the Orphan Drug Act not doing for a company like Intrabio that needs to be done? Or it's not just Intrabio, it's for everybody. The Orphan Drug Act um, is not getting you uh, to be able to talk to the FDA on a, on a basis, um, on a timely basis, and it's not able to help you get to the pivotal trials um, in a way that everybody agrees is ethical and also shows high efficacy based on the disease. Um, the Orphan Drug Act doesn't do any of that. Uh, or does it, it does very little of it. After you get a drug approved, it does all sorts of nice things for you, from tax benefits to um, exclusivity. But till you get the drug approved, it does very little. Well, 
what's wrong with the drug development process for orphan drugs today? The, um, the FDA, uh, and we've met with them, I mean, they're good people. Uh, they're trying to do their job, which is to prevent risk. The FDA needs to be told by Congress, and, 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 and uh, I mean, these are people who want to do the right thing, but they have to be given legislative directive to do risk-benefit analysis as opposed to just risk analysis. It, uh, you have to look at benefit versus risk. You're developing drugs for a number of lysosomal storage disorders. When I think of the... Uh, by the way, by the way, also, we have, we have a couple of case studies already which I'm so proud of, and we haven't really announced this, but I'll, I'll let you know where we've shown efficacy in the uh, in Lewy body dementia, which is the most prevalent type of dementia. Our, our drug is a very high-level drug. Our, our drug, basically, our IB-1001, um, is a drug that basically normal, normalizes neuronal membrane potential. And if you can normalize the neuronal membrane potential, if a, if a membrane is hyper or hypoactive, then the, then, you're a lot, then the signals go through the membrane to the lysosome, and the lysosome is able to clear various types of uh, lipids, various types of proteins that build up. Um, and so what we're basically doing is we're letting the lysosome do all the work. That's why it's intra-bio, uh, which was named by Professor Anthony Gaglioni, who's the name professor of um, he's the name professor of pharmacology at Oxford, um, as well as a fellow of the Royal Society, because he believes that uh, up until recently nobody understood how to manipulate the lysosome. And we're not even manipulating it. We're just allowing, we have some drugs as well to manipulate the lysosome, but, uh, some autophagy drugs, but we're not even developing those. We're just going with our lead compound, IB-1001, which is solely allowing us to normalize neuronal membrane potential. And the drug is safer than aspirin by far. It's almost as safe as water because what it does is it, it, it basically is a ester of an amino acid that crosses the blood-brain barrier and, and then uh, metabolizes into an, an amino acid almost immediately. When I think of clinical trials in lysosomal storage disorders, the FDA in the past has allowed biomarkers for clear signals as to whether a, a therapy is working. Is there an issue with that in these conditions because there's CNS involvement? Uh, are, are there acceptable neurological endpoints that the FDA is allowing you to use? There are well-established uh, biomarkers, and uh, but when you, you really, what it really comes down to, putting everything aside for a second, what it really comes down to uh, for all drugs is quality of life. Is the person's life being made better by that uh, drug? And we've developed some endpoints, which the FDA has, um, or we've developed some, some endpoints with the FDA has been um, quite, um, I, I won't say helpful, but they've been listening to us and they have been helpful. And the, and the European medicine agencies, countries, have been extraordinarily helpful where we're, where we're, where we're producing a new quality of, of life.
life um, endpoint, uh, which can be blindly measured. That sounds like a good thing. It sounds like a great thing, because that's what drugs are all for. I mean, who cares if, if a particular enzyme is increased or decreased if the quality of life isn't better? Well, one of your concerns is that the opportunity for interaction with the FDA comes too late through existing pathways, and you think part of that solution is to have more and earlier interactions with FDA. Can you explain Well, first that? of all, we, we went to an FDA meeting for a PIND meeting, preliminary IND meeting, and there was like 20-some-odd people in the room. I want to be able to sit down and talk to one or two people about a particular issue without having to wait eight months. And, I mean, I understand that they want to be prepared and they want to be great detail, but we're not even asking for the decision. We're asking for opinions, help, to help these people. These people are dying, and we, think we have something that we believe can help these people greatly. The question is, how do we prove the efficacy to make the FDA and all regulators happy? Because we want to do that. And you don't find the FDA has been able to communicate that clearly or, or quickly enough? Uh, they communicate fairly clearly, um, but uh, quickly, I mean, I don't know. Uh, when somebody has a lifespan of six, uh, a little over six and a half years, and it takes eight months to get a meeting, how many people died because of that? I'd argue the FDA has shown great flexibility when it comes to the development of treatments for rare diseases, particularly when there's a serious disease with no available therapies. The one area the agency seems to have the greatest concern about is the area of safety. Do you think the FDA's balance between risk and, and benefits are off in regards to rare diseases? Uh, I think that ha I think the risk benefit has to be looked at more carefully. Um, I think with I mean we have um, enormous amount of uh, safety data on our drug, um, enormous amounts. Um, and uh, uh, I will I mean I don't know uh, I've named a couple of diseases. Do you know anything medically available in the United States for Neiman Pick Type C for Tay Sachs or for uh, some of the cerebellar ataxias? Only in clinical trials. The spinal cerebellar taxes. The answer is there's nothing approved. Period. You'd like to see new legislation that confers the benefits of orphan designation earlier in the development process to enhance closer and greater engagement with the FDA. How might that work? Very simply. Um, we should have somebody we can be able to talk to. It uh, doesn't have to be on a daily basis or even a weekly basis. But we should be able to reach somebody to have serious conversations of limited duration um, within at least a 30-day period. You participated in this hearing. Is there any effort underway to bring about such changes? Absolutely. I will tell you that uh, Senator Paul, Senator Rand Paul, who um, I'm a major fan of, um, uh, actually had the, had the hearing. He's a physician, as you know. And the ranking member, Senator Casey's staff, came up to us afterwards and said, we want to do something jointly. And uh, um, Senator Paul, who's considered a libertarian conservative by a lot of people, um, uh, uh, has been very anxious to see something done. And uh, Carolyn Maloney, who is the opposite politically, held a press conference on the steps of City Hall, which I was invited to, in New York, um, wanting to do the same thing. So, I, I mean... Um, the problem. So I think there's a real opportunity for bipartisan 
efforts here. The problem is that there's something far more important going on than people's lives right now. It's an election. I'm being facetious, obviously. Mallory Factor, CEO of IntraBio. Mallory, thanks so much for your time today. Daniel, thank you so much. I, uh, I, I hope this sheds some light. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.